Good morning. I'm grateful to be back with you again. I appreciate the invitation. That clip from Downton Abbey, I have to confess, my wife and I were big fans. It's like one of the only shows we would actually watch when it aired on Sunday nights. We'd put the kids somewhere in the basement and have to watch it. It wouldn't be something we would just binge watch on Netflix later. That scene um, captures something which we think of as an old-fashioned idea, that certain people are welcomed into high society and others are kept in their place. It was a very stratified world in uh, the early 20th century England, but we don't want to admit we still function that way a lot today. We do it more subtly. We do it more with technology. I'll get into that in a little bit. But we still have this mindset that we want certain people close to us, and we want other people, for various reasons, to just stay at a distance. When we are welcomed with open arms, it's a warm feeling we get. It, it makes us feel good and, and affirmed. And when we're excluded in some way, as, as Bates and Anna were in that clip, it wounds us. It hurts. It makes us feel less. What I want to talk about this morning is the biblical call to hospitality. When we hear the word hospitality, we usually don't think of theology or Bible. We usually think of HGTV or the Food Network or Martha Stewart or making our homes these incredibly beautiful places for people to come into where they'll be both comfortable and impressed. But in truth, hospitality is a deeply rooted Christian tradition. We find it throughout the scriptures. The Old Testament talks about it. The Gospels talk about it. The Apostles talk about it. John, Peter, James, even the writer of Hebrews commands us to practice hospitality. But when they command us to do this, it's not about your dishes and your guest bedroom or making your home clean and pretty for someone to come into. Christian hospitality means something different. It's something that we've well, largely lost in our culture, and I think we need to bring it back, particularly in the church. And we'll talk about why in a little bit as well. But first, we've got to understand what hospitality actually means. The word, as translated from Scripture, literally means to love strangers. Or another translation might be to love the alien, to love the person who is different than yourself. And this is not a call to an emotional love. It's a call to action, to do things that are genuinely helpful and caring of the other person who is unlike yourself. The story I want to look at this morning that highlights this quality in Jesus himself is in Matthew chapter 9. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, I encourage you to turn there. It's a story that you may be familiar with. It's not one we usually think about regarding hospitality, but I, I think it's a profound one that exhibits the qualities of Christian hospitality that we need to recover. It says, Matthew chapter 9, I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Last summer, my wife and I bought a new home. I live in Wheaton, in the western suburbs. It's not all that different than up here in the north suburbs, but the entire process of finding a home, purchasing a home, and moving into a home was horrible. I don't want to do it again. And those of you who are in the real estate industry, uh, I don't know how you do it. It's, it's so taxing, literally and figuratively. But um, it was an exhausting experience. But the one thing I learned in it, as we went to dozens and dozens of homes over the course of a year trying to find one, looking at all of them online, is the way we design our homes, particularly in suburbia, is a real reflection of our values, the things we really care about. And here's one thing I noticed. Most of our suburban homes are designed to isolate us, to keep people away from us. So, for example, in my neighborhood, and I'm sure many around here, the homes are built as far back away from the street and the sidewalk as possible. All right? You don't have to deal with the stranger who might walk by the house. And it's actually a, a demonstration of your wealth how far away you can actually be from the street. Right? If you can afford a larger piece of property, then you can put your house further away from everyone else. It's isolating. And then we design our homes to ensure that if a stranger does come by, we can keep them at a distance. Very few homes are built anymore with a front porch where you would mingle with your neighbors or people walking by. If anyone does come to the front door, there are various things we have to ensure to we can filter out who we actually let in. There's the old technology of the peephole, right, where you can peer out and make sure, eh, do I really want this person in my house or not? Now we have newer technology. There's all those new cameras that can sync to your cell phone and show you exactly who's at the front door. All of this is designed to keep people at a distance, to filter them out. And now we don't just do this with our homes. We do it with our digital lives as well. There's all kinds of social media apps out there that can find you exactly the people that you want to be with and filter out everyone you don't. We friend certain people, we don't others. I think it's interesting that when you friend somebody, they're notified, but when you unfriend someone, they're not. They have to find out the old-fashioned way, through the grapevine, right? All of this is designed to filter who we let in. Just like Bates and Anna in that restaurant, certain people you want to keep out. Others you want to allow in. The people who are like us, well, come on in. You're welcomed. Those who aren't like us, we want to keep out. What's interesting, even though we organize our lives this way, and it's been the way people have organized their lives forever, when you look at Jesus in this story with Matthew and the other sinners, it appears that Jesus doesn't have a filter, or at least not a functioning one, on his life. Because if he did, he would not have let someone like Matthew and his friends near him. Now, let me explain why. If you don't know anything about first century Jewish culture, Matthew was a tax collector. And although a tax collector has never been a popular person, in this setting, he's particularly unpopular because in ancient Judea, tax collectors were seen as both traitors and thieves. They were seen as traitors because the Roman occupiers of Israel would hire Jews to collect taxes from their own countrymen to then pay the Romans. So you were betraying your own people to take their money and give it to their occupiers. And he was seen as a thief because the way a tax collector made their living was by demanding more in taxes than the government actually required, and you'd line your pocket with the surplus. So he was despised, he was hated, and because he was a traitor betraying God's own people, he was seen 
as at the very bottom of the totem pole, spiritually, religiously. He was a turncoat. So for all these reasons, tax collectors were ostracized by the establishment, by the religious hierarchy. And yet here's Jesus inviting Matthew to be his follower and then going to Matthew's house and hanging out with a bunch of other tax collectors and sinners. There's a a detail in Mark's telling of the story which is interesting. He not only says that there were many other tax collectors and sinners at his house that night, but that they also were followers of Jesus. It wasn't just Matthew. Apparently, a whole bunch of these 'er ne'er-do-wells were attracted to Jesus. They wanted to be with him. They hung out with him. So you got kind of two weird things going on here. On one hand, you have Jesus, this righteous rabbi, who collects these just horrible people that no one else wants to have around them. And then you have these horrible people, the tax collectors and sinners, who presume to share a table with a righteous rabbi like Jesus. And they were not just sharing a table with him, but they were wildly attracted to him. They wanted to be close to him. They found him to be an appealing person. Why? Why was he so attractive? I think it's because Jesus didn't have a peephole. He didn't have a filter. He didn't screen people out and determine who was really worthy of his time and his attention and his affirmation. He didn't operate the way we do. He didn't isolate himself and separate from anyone who would be a hindrance to his reputation. Here's another way of putting it. Jesus did not expect other people to be like him before allowing them into his life. There is no peephole on the door to God's kingdom. He doesn't filter people out and determine who's really worthy to be here and who is not. Jesus articulated this earlier in Matthew's Gospel at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I like how Dallas Willard translates that verse. He says a more accurate way of saying it is, Blessed are the spiritual zeros. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The spiritual zeros, those who do not have it all figured out, those who don't have strong faith, those who don't have righteous lives, those who are a complete mess, they also are blessed because they too are welcomed into the kingdom of God. These aren't just the people who go to church, who have good-looking families, who've got a retirement account and who've never done anything that would bring upon them a bad reputation. These are the outcast, the worst of the worst. They too are welcomed by Jesus. He doesn't filter them out. A couple years ago, I was in Denver, Colorado, and I I met a pastor who's become a friend of mine named Mike. And Mike leads a really interesting church in downtown Denver. It's called Scum of the Earth. That's the name of the church. It's, it's actually a reference lifted from, uh, I think, 1 Corinthians 4, where Paul refers to himself as the scum of the earth. And when I first met uh, Mike and, and saw his church, I, I asked him, like, who, who comes here? Like, what kind of people go to a church called scum of the earth? And he had his answer right away. He said, we are a church for the right-brained and the left-out. For the right-brained and the left-out. And it is. The congregation is full of an interesting mix of people. There's quite a few homeless people. 
those who are left out, who are excluded from more reputable places. There's a lot of young people, teenagers, some runaways, young adults, but there's a lot of artists, a lot of creatives, a lot of wanderers who just don't feel at home in other congregations because so many of our churches are really for the left-brained, the analytical, and for those who are um, well-accepted and established in society. What Mike and his church realize is that Jesus didn't have a scum filter. He was a scum magnet. They loved him. They wanted to be closer to him. He collected scum. That's why the Pharisees had so much trouble with Jesus. He, he took 12 scumbags with him everywhere he went, right? You look at the lineup of his apostles. These are not the upper-ups of society. I don't have time to go through them all, but these are not the dream team you would pick if you were a rabbi collecting disciples in first century Israel. So here's my question. Who do you filter out of your life? How do you live your faith with a peephole that keeps people at a distance? Many of us have a form of filtered Christianity, a filtered hospitality that says, I'm comfortable with people who are like me, who think like me, who vote like me, who spend like me, who worship like me, who live like me. Therefore, my hospitality, my love, my attention, my care will go to people who are like me. And if you don't meet those standards, well, you know, God loves you, but I don't. I'm happy keeping you at a distance. There's a researcher at MIT who I think is just brilliant, and she has some uh, great TED Talks if you're ever interested in looking her up and some good books. Her name is Sherry Turkle. Uh, She's a researcher of technology. And when the Internet was kind of in its infancy, she was highly enthusiastic for the power of this new digital technology to bring people together across the globe. She thought that it would help us build relationships with people who we would normally never have contact with and make the world a more harmonious place. Well, after 20 years of researching the actual effects of the Internet, Turkle has changed her mind. She's concluded that it's actually done exactly the opposite. That while it can put us in touch with people who are very different than ourselves, digital technology has also given us better filters than we have ever had before. So now we can, through various algorithms and searches and other technologies, find people who are exactly like us and construct a digital life online where we only engage with people who think exactly as we do. We can isolate ourselves into echo chambers. So if if you're a 45-year-old man whose entire life is built around a love for Disneyland, you can find the two other people in the world like you (laughs) and have a connection with them and not have to engage with anyone else who's different. We do this in our politics. We do it in our news consumption. We do it even in the church. We have fragmented and isolated more and more and more because it makes us comfortable to be like people like ourselves. So the first thing I want to challenge you with when it comes to your understanding of hospitality is who do you filter out? Who do you think is unworthy of your time and your energy? Who do you keep at a distance? It may be an individual that comes to mind because they're just too taxing on you. It may be a group of people. 
And sometimes we justify this because we think, well, that group isn't welcomed by God either, so therefore I don't have to welcome them. And yet, in this story, we see Jesus welcoming those whom the entire culture, including the religious culture of his time, had said were unworthy to be welcomed. So here's the second thing I observed in our house hunting months last year. Not only do our houses reflect the value of isolation and privacy and filtering out those we don't like, our homes are also designed, at least mine is, to look better than it really is. So in my neighborhood, most of the homes were built in the 1980s. Almost all the homes are brick. Our house is brick. But if you go around to the side of the house or the back, it ain't brick. (laughs) It's just the facade, just the front, right? The expensive, um, sturdy-looking building material is just for curb appeal. The rest of it's just siding. It's all to make the house look more valuable from the street. And this kind of value extends inside the house as well. This trend is changing a little bit. For many, many years, though, when you walk into a house, what are the first rooms you see? My house, it's the living room and the dining room. The two rooms we never use. No one uses, right? Total waste of space. But they're kept clean, and they're you know, nicer furniture in there. Because when a guest comes in, you want to present to them a um, sparkling reality. Look how well-kept our house is. Now, don't go back any further because you're going to see the huge pile of dirty dishes and all the garbage the kids have laid everywhere and the chaos. And certainly don't go upstairs where there are mountains of unfolded laundry and various odors from pets and children, right? No, we, we don't want people to see that. We want them to see the good stuff. And, of course, we do this in our digital lives as well. Nobody puts the unflattering picture of themselves on their Facebook page. It's always the one that makes you look younger, thinner, and have more hair. I've given up on that, right? (laughs) We always present the very best of ourselves online, and we hide the very worst. My kids went back to school this week, and I'm not on Facebook a lot, but sometimes I, I look around, and it's... Amazing how every mom in our neighborhood is posting, all, and we did too, all these great pictures of their kids with their backpacks on the first day of school, and everyone's smiling, everyone's happy. And the truth is, and you know this is true, the first day of school is a living hell in most of our homes, right? It's chaos, it's fighting, it's arguing, it's getting everything. And yet we present to the world this pristine picture of this happy family marching off to school. Because we think... Life is about presenting a false reality. And this translates into the way we think about hospitality. We think that hospitality is inviting people into that perfect image, right? We throw the smelly dog out when guests are coming over. We tell the kids sometimes threateningly, you are going to behave. You are not going to be your true self because we're having guests over. You throw the garbage into the closets and you hide the unfolded laundry and you spray some air freshener and light some candles because you want people to come in and think that your life is better than it really is. True hospitality, true Christian hospitality, however, is not that. It's not about presenting an image better than you are. Here's how one pastor describes true Christian hospitality. Great hosts invite you to join the fabric and flow of their household. And they love you along the way, but they are who they are. 
In the early centuries of the church, actually predating the church, if you go back to ancient Near Eastern hospitality, the code was that when a stranger would come, you were to welcome them and provide for their needs, but you didn't change the reality of your life to accommodate that stranger. In fact, you welcome them into the reality of your life. This was codified by the Celtic Christians when somebody would come to one of their monasteries. Their first priority was to give that stranger a warm meal, a place to rest, and dry clothing if they needed it. But then each stranger was given a host or a guide who would shepherd them into the ordinary work and flow of the monastery. They would join you for prayers, for worship, and for whatever the work activities were of that Christian community. Everything didn't just stop to entertain a guest because true hospitality was welcoming a person into the reality of your life or in your community rather than the false image that we want to present. What we've done in today's view of hospitality is we've reversed that. We think that real hospitality means finding out what your guest or target audience wants and then tailor-making your reality to fit their expectations, to change who you are, to change your household, to change your church, to change your community, so that the people who you want to reach will feel welcomed here, even if what they're being welcomed into is a farce, even if it isn't real. The problem with this is, where there isn't truth, there cannot be genuine love. Where there isn't truth, there cannot be genuine love. I've read a number of psychologists over the years about relationships because when I was on staff at my church, I had to do some counseling, which is not my strong suit. Uh, a lot of premarital counseling. And one of the things I learned was, and I guess this is a rule of thumb, most relationships don't really start dealing with reality until about 24 months in. And you, you've probably experienced this, right? New relationship, boyfriend, girlfriend kind of thing. There's this infatuation. Because you're not dealing with a real person yet. You're dealing with the facade, with the image that they're presenting, and vice versa. So when a couple would come to me and they're engaged and they were getting married and they counseling, one of my first questions to them would be, tell me something about the other person that you really don't like. And if I heard things, oh, there's nothing, he's perfect. I know, you're not dealing with a real relationship yet. Because no one's perfect. It takes about two years and they start falling. I remember when this happened to uh, me and my wife. We dated actually for five years before we got married. I was a college student. And those first couple of years, we never fought. We never had an argument. We never had any real conflict. And then right around two years, I stopped pretending. And so did she. So here's how it used to go down. We'd go out for an evening or something and maybe a, an issue would arise, some disagreement. And and we would just kind of plaster over it. And, oh, no, no, we don't have to argue. It's fine. And I'd give in or she'd give in. And we would just kind of play kind. And it was all great. And then two years in, I remember the evening. I was home from college. And I picked her up from her parents' house. And I don't know what we were doing. We are going to go out somewhere. And some issue arose. And there was some tension in the car. And neither one of us was kind of letting uh, the other person win on whatever the disagreement was. I can't remember. And Amanda, my girlfriend at the time, said something like, well, this is just going to ruin the whole night. Why don't you just take me home? Now, a couple months earlier, I would have said something like, no, 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 it's not a big deal. Well, you know, and I would give in on whatever the opinion thing was, and then we'd move on with our night. But this time, I decided, you know what? I've had enough. 
And she said, well, why don't you just take me home? And I slammed on the brakes. And I said, fine. And I turned the car around, and I drove back to her parents' house, and I said, get out. And she, her jaw just hit there, like, I can't believe it. And she suddenly realized, maybe this guy that I thought was perfect for two years may have just a little bit of a jerk in him. (laughs) She was beginning to see the real sky. And then we started fighting. But the good news was, we were finally dealing with reality. And as she began to see me as I really am, the good and the bad, and I began to see her strengths, as well as her shortcomings, now we had the chance to actually love a real person. The good, the bad, the ugly. Real hospitality, genuine Christian hospitality, has two components. On one hand, it's welcoming people just as they are without a filter, but it's also about welcoming them into our lives just as we are. The truth of ourselves. And what's remarkable is that Jesus gets this so beautifully. He didn't filter out Matthew and his 'er ne'er-do-well friends, but in the process of welcoming these people, and you see this throughout the Gospels, Jesus doesn't change who he is in the process. He doesn't become a tax collector to reach tax collectors, right? He is who he is. He welcomes them into the reality of his existence. And what was dumbfounding to his disciples is that Jesus would sometimes emphasize the less glamorous realities of his life. So when people would say, I want to come follow you, Jesus, he'd say, you realize I am homeless, right? I got nowhere to sleep. And the disciples are going, no, 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 Jesus, you're leading with the wrong thing here. You need to say, you know, like you're the Messiah. Or he would say things like, you know, if you want to come follow me, you got to take up your cross and deny yourself. Oh, Jesus, you know, that's not how you grow a big church, Jesus. But he would often do that emphasizing the unglorious realities because he wanted people to love the true Jesus. One of the most vivid examples of this is in John chapter 13, the wonderful story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, right? This is the most humiliating act anybody can do. Only the lowest of the low servants would wash feet. But in the beginning of that chapter, John writes that Jesus, knowing that he had come from the Father, and was returning to the Father, took off his clothes, wrapped himself in a towel, and began to wash his disciples' feet. In other words, Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was absolutely secure, having come from the Father, going back to the Father. He was set free to humiliate himself and serve his disciples because he didn't need their affirmation. So often the way we practice hospitality is not about loving the person we are hosting. It's about trying to get that person we are hosting to love us because we so desperately want their affirmation. So we put up a pretend self. We fake it, hoping people will walk away from their time with us going, what a great guy, because we're insecure in who we are. True love cannot flow where there is not truth. So we have these two components, welcoming people and the truth of who they are into the truth of who we are. Now, why is this so important? Why is Christian hospitality, perhaps more than ever, something we need to recapture in our environment? Well, let's go back to the story. 
Jesus is enjoying this dinner with the scum of the earth, and the Pharisees show up, these religious leaders, and they're appalled at what they see. They ask Jesus' disciples, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would he allow these terrible people into his inner circle? It's interesting that the disciples don't respond to the question. Jesus does. He overhears this and realizes this is a big deal. I need to answer this myself. And he says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Think about the scene for a minute. It's a big house. Matthew had a lot of money because he was a thief. It's a big house. He's putting on a big party, a table full of food and wine. And there's a lot of obnoxious people there, people who don't care about their reputation, right? And they're doing what people do at a good party when there's good wine. And Jesus is at the party, so you know there's good wine, right? They're dancing, they're singing, they're smoking, they're laughing, they're telling inappropriate jokes, whatever. There's, and Jesus is in the middle of all of this, enjoying himself. And the Pharisees are outside the gate looking at this, and they're just appalled because what they see is a rabbi defiling himself with horrible people. But what Jesus sees is a doctor in the process of healing the sick. He sees it completely differently. It's, it's not coincidental that the Latin root word for hospitality is also where we get the word hospital. A hospital is literally a house or a home for strangers. And yet we've come to understand it's also a place of healing. And it's not just an etymological link. When we are welcomed into another person's life without condition, when we're welcomed just as we are, and they reveal the truth of who they are, that hospitality brings healing to us. You know, so many places we go in this world tells us that our acceptance, our value, our love is contingent. We have to earn it. We have to achieve it. We have to prove that we are worthy of love. And when we don't meet the standard, when we don't reach that threshold of acceptability, when we're excluded from the restaurant, it leaves a wound. And it's especially terrible when that wound is inflicted upon us by a parent, a spouse, a teacher, a church, someone or some group that says, you need to stay out. You are unworthy. You have to change before I'll let you in again. Rejection always leaves a wound. Philo of Alexandria, early church father, said, be kind because everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. We are all fighting a great battle to prove that we are worth loving. Some of us fight that battle by jumping from relationship to relationship to relationship, looking for someone who will accept us. Others, men in particular, although increasingly women, think that we can prove our lovable and acceptable value by achieving more in our careers, 
If I just make more money or achieve a greater level of success, then I will prove that I'm worthy. Some of us display it by buying bigger and better tokens of our success, bigger homes, better cars. Some of us who are especially tired of the battle, who find the wounds of rejection too painful, will seek any temporary physical pleasure to mask the pain. Alcohol, drugs, sex, food. We are all fighting a great battle, which is why hospitality, true Christian hospitality, is so important. Because the way we find healing for those wounds is to be welcomed, to be embraced, to be accepted. And to have that happen by another person or community that also reveals the truth of who they are, who shows their wounds, who says, yes, we have all been there. We understand and we do not expect you to change before you are going to be worthy of our embrace. That's what Jesus was doing for Matthew and his friends. He was a physician healing the wounded. And it's what we are called to do as his people. Our homes are to be places where those who are not like us are welcomed. And not welcomed into a fake pretend reality, but into the messy realities. The authentic reality of our lives. And that's what our churches are supposed to be. These are supposed to be places where the wounded of the world, who don't have it all together, the spiritual zeros, are welcomed and they don't have to pretend. But they find not only a Christ who welcomes them, but they find a people of Christ who welcomes them. This discipline of Christian hospitality is so necessary because despite the cleanliness and beauty of our suburbs and our neighborhoods and our homes, we know that behind the facade, the reality is there are a lot of wounded, broken people and families. And what will bring healing to them is the authentic practice of welcoming them into the reality of our lives. When we lived in our old neighborhood, there were a lot of kids in the area, but there was one little girl who lived a few doors down from us named Michaela. She lived with her grandparents. Her mother and her father were just not healthy enough to care for her. This was a young girl who had experienced more woundedness at an early age than our world should allow. She became friends with my kids, and they would play in the neighborhood and often be in our home. And one day, my wife told me I was away at work. The kids were who knows where, and Michaela knocked on our front door, and she asked my wife, is Zoe home, my daughter? No, honey, she's not. Was Isaac home? She'd even be willing to play with the boy. Sorry, honey, he's not here either. What about, you know, the baby? Is she around? No, actually, she's not here either. And then Michaela just looked at my wife and said, well, can I come in and just be with you? My wife welcomed her in, and they spent some time together reading books or just doing kid stuff. What Michaela had come to realize is that our home, as imperfect as it was, was a place where she was welcomed, where she could find healing and rest from the battle. Here's the three things I want you to think about as we end this morning. 
Who do you filter? Who do you want to keep at a distance? And what would your life look like if you dropped that filter? What lives could be touched and welcomed? Secondly, how are you pretending when others come into your life? How can you let your guard down a little bit? Be more authentic with the people you engage. Be more honest about your own wounds and imperfections. How would your relationships in your neighborhood, in this church, be different? And third, how can you do more than just welcome people who happen to pass through your life? How can you actually go out and seek them? Jesus didn't just happen upon Matthew. He sought him. He welcomed him. He called him. We, as his people, are meant to take the first step, to go and seek out those who are hurting, welcome them as they are into the reality of who we are. That's what our culture needs, and that's what will bring the healing of Christ to so many. Let me pray. Our gracious Father, I'm thankful that you sought us and welcomed us, that you have adopted us as your daughters and your sons. We are grateful that you welcomed us as we are, in our brokenness, in our depravity, in our sinfulness. Lord, I pray for those here who are feeling the wounds of rejection, the pain of not being accepted, the conditional love of this world, that this morning they would find your presence to be healing and that your presence would come, yes, through your word and through your spirit, but also through a brother or sister who's here, someone who can embrace them, pray for them, encourage them. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be that for another. Bring to mind someone in our own lives, a workplace colleague, a friend in the neighborhood, a stranger, somebody that you are calling us to, to listen, to embrace, to love and care for. We pray that you would give us the grace to be more like Christ in welcoming those who are so different than ourselves. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.